Okay, welcome back to The Good, The Bad and The Bogus. This is David Free. This is another essay that I'm pulling out of my archives today because I think it's worth preserving. It's an essay that I wrote a few years ago for The Atlantic about Monty Python. And the full text of it is available on The Atlantic website for those who are interested. Mainly it's a general essay about Monty Python, but it was published as a book review And the hook for it was that a book of Python scripts had just been published called Monty Python's Flying Circus, Complete and Annotated, All the Bits, which was edited by a writer called Luke Dempsey. Few things have changed since I wrote this essay. It was written before streaming services rendered the DVD redundant, so there's a couple of references in here to DVD boxed sets that now seem a bit outdated. Also, it was written before the death of the great Python Terry Jones, who died earlier this year. Otherwise, I think this essay stands up. In the uh, Atlantic, when it was published, it was called The Beatles of Comedy. In 1968, a group of young English comedians made a TV special called How to Irritate People. The show was pitched at the US market, and it was designed to get Americans excited about a new wave of British comedy. It failed in that aim, but there's one sketch in the show that remains fascinating for any archaeologist of humour. Written by a couple of Cambridge graduates named John Cleese and Graham Chapman, the sketch is set in the workshop of a shady car salesman. A disgruntled customer, played by Chapman, returns his new car and starts to register a series of complaints. The gear lever is loose. The brakes don't work. Before the sketch is over, the vehicle's doors have fallen off. But the dodgy salesman, played by a promising young comedian named Michael Palin, has an answer for everything. You must expect teething troubles in these new models, he says. In real life, Palin had just been sold a defective car himself, and he had entertained John Cleese with impersonations of the stonewalling salesman. The resulting sketch, which can now be dug up on YouTube, took a few comic liberties with Palin's real-life experiences. A few liberties, but not enough. Like a lot of Apprentice work, the sketch is too respectful of convention to strike a distinctive note. A year or so later, the BBC offered John Cleese his own series. He was interested, but he didn't want to be the show's star. He preferred to surround himself with a team of Britain's cleverest young writer-performers. Graham Chapman, Cleese's writing partner since their days in the Footlights Club at Cambridge, was first on board. Cleese also wanted to bring on Palin, but Palin had by now acquired some other teammates of his own, with whom he'd been working on a children's program called Do Not Adjust Your Set. Cleese, who admired the show, was so keen to get Palin that he agreed to recruit three of his collaborators as well. One was an enthusiastic Welshman named Terry Jones, whom Palin had teamed up with at Oxford. The second was Eric Idle, another Cambridge graduate. And the third was a loose-looking American named Terry Gilliam, who had come to London to work as a cartoonist and illustrator and had vague aspirations to direct movies. So the new troupe would consist of six men broken into three writing units, Cleese and Chapman, 
Payland and Jones, and Idle, who wrote solo and specialised in songs and monologues. Then there was Gilliam, who would be left alone to do his animations. Their show would have an initial run of 13 half-hour episodes, but for a long while they had no idea what to call it. The team flirted with a long list of options. Will Strangler's Flying Circus, E.L. Moist's Flying Circus, Gwen Dibley's Vaseline Hour, before they hit on the name that stuck, Monty Python's Flying Circus. Working up material for the new project, Cleas and Chapman took another pass at the car salesman idea. It had possibilities, thought Cleese, that they had failed to exploit the first time. What if they shifted the action to a pet shop? And what if the malfunctioning car became a dead animal? A dog, say? Or a parrot? The dead parrot sketch debuted on episode 8 of Monty Python's Flying Circus, which aired in Britain on December the 7th, 1969. The sketch epitomised everything that was striking about the new show. Its impatience with the old formal rules, its ability to take good ideas and compress them into diamonds. The car salesman sketch had been about the absurdity of bad service, but it had attacked that absurdity in a naturalistic way. It began with a plausible situation, then gradually made it sillier. The parrot sketch inverted that approach. It was absurd from the start, but its absurdity was a compact, dreamlike way of telling the truth. This time, the role of the aggrieved customer was taken by Cleese, who played him not as a straight man, but as a brill-creamed, rain-coated weirdo. In the world of Monty Python, even a guy with a valid complaint is a lunatic. As for Palin's salesman, this time his denials of the undeniable had an existential audacity. He was ready to claim, and to keep claiming, that the palpably dead parrot was just resting. Cleese, indignantly brandishing the bird's corpse, was the victim of the ultimate, the archetypal rip-off. But even so, he remained an Englishman. Nutty as he was, he wasn't about to vault over the desk and punch Palin's lights out. Language was the only weapon available to him. So his tamped-down rage expressed itself in a torrent of increasingly Baroque synonyms for death, which Cleese and Chapman composed with the aid of a thesaurus. And when that outburst of manic poetry was over, the Pythons didn't bother forcing the parrot sketch toward a well-made conclusion. The quest for punchlines bored them. Instead, the sketch collapses into a series of bizarre digressions, and finally, Cleese's character just turns to the camera and declares that the situation has become too silly. And that's that. We move on to the next item. I concede that there are people who don't find the dead parrot sketch funny at all. I know a couple of them personally. They are unmoved by the sight of John Cleese in his raincoat, wielding that stuffed parrot and saying, it's bleeding demised. I know these people, but I can't help them. In the age of the DVD boxed set, publishing a bumper collection of Python's TV scripts seems like a quixotic venture. At whom is this book aimed? Python fans who don't have TVs? As script collections go, however, all the bits is a deluxe affair. 
The layout is suitably colourful and carnivalesque. The pages teem with screenshots and spiffy fonts. The annotations by Luke Dempsey are sometimes presumptuous. We will get to that. But mainly, they're amusing and good to have. On the whole, the book does a commendable job of getting Python spirit onto the printed page. So, presumably, it's aimed at those of us who own the DVDs already, but still want to get our hands on new Python product. Python lovers will always want to do that, even if these days the new product is bound to be old product, repackaged and garnished with a few fresh trimmings. The Pythons have done no original comedy as a team since 1983, when they released the movie The Meaning of Life. The prospect of a full reunion was nixed conclusively in 1989, when Graham Chapman died of cancer. Since then, the surviving members have reconvened for the odd group interview. They have murmured unconvincingly about the possibility of future collaborations. Individual Pythons have done spin-off projects, notably Eric Idle, who had a Broadway hit with the musical Spamalot. But the surviving Pythons live in different parts of the world now, and the prospect that they will ever work together again is small. Considering their tremendous influence, the Pythons had a surprisingly brief productive career. What set them apart, what made them the Beatles of comedy, was the uncanny wattage of their collective energy. Their ratio of classic stuff to dud stuff was freakishly high. Between 1969 and 1973, the original team made three TV seasons of 13 episodes each. At the end of the third season, Cleese withdrew from the show because he believed the good ideas were running out. The others went on without him for one more season, which consisted of only six episodes, and the patchiness of those final shows appeared to vindicate Cleese's decision to bail out. Either the Pythons had exhausted TV, or it had exhausted them. Quitting the medium for good, the remainder of the troupe reunited with Cleese and started work on their first original film script. The Pythons had appeared in one film together already, a 1971 reshoot of some of their earliest sketches called And Now for Something Completely Different. That movie, over which the Pythons enjoyed little creative control, had been designed to break them in America, but it had proved a flop. It wasn't until 1974, when the first season of Flying Circus started airing on PBS, that Python's American reputation began to catch fire. The PBS sale was fortunate for Python in more ways than one. When the offer came in, the BBC was preparing to wipe the original tapes for reuse. In 1975, Python released its first proper film, the ragged but inspired Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Then, in 1979, came Monty Python's Life of Brian, the masterpiece, provocatively set in Judea at the time of Christ. The Meaning of Life, their final movie, was a letdown. It looked better than Python's previous films, but its big and overlong set pieces seemed to announce that Python's prodigious powers of invention were flagging. If Chapman hadn't died, would Python have gone on making films? The Meaning of Life has a forced and synthetic quality that makes you wonder. The 45 half-hour TV episodes, then, remain the spine of Monty Python's achievement. 
Going back through the scripts, you can see why the troupe wasn't destined to last for long. The show's format was a ravenous guzzler-up of good material. In no other comedy series in TV history have so many brilliant ideas been packed into so small a space. Consider Python's semaphore version of Wuthering Heights. It wasn't just that the Pythons had the wit to dream up that idea. They also crucially had the comic sense not to attenuate it by stretching it over the rack of a four-minute sketch. They took two minutes to harvest its richest possibilities. Heathcliff and Catherine wave flags at each other across a moor with explanatory subtitles. Catherine's husband confronts her, flagging irately. A baby cries by sticking two tiny flags out of its cradle. And then they moved on. They could afford to because they had other ideas that were just as good waiting around the corner. When a sketch about striking miners starts to peter out, we cut to a news desk from which Palin delivers some urgent bulletins. And finally, he says in the Disgusting Objects International at Wembley tonight, England beat Spain by a plate of braised pus to a putrid heron. A less inspired bunch of writers would have spun out this promising idea into a full sketch, if not an entire half hour. But for Python, the idea lasts for precisely as long as it takes Palin to say it, and then it's gone. When Monty Python came on the scene, the average comedy show was like a stage review with a few cameras pointed at it. The Pythons took liberties with the medium, the way their admired goons had taken liberties with radio. They did things you could only do on TV. If they felt like it, they rolled the credits in the middle of the show. Posing as BBC voiceover men, they issued apologies for the contents of their own sketches. When their ideas didn't fit together, Terry Gilliam supplied a minute or two of animation to link them. The nightmare logic of his sequences, in which cartoon figures were constantly getting their limbs or heads lopped off, echoed the violent unpredictability of the sketches. The Pythons were masters of juxtaposition. Their signature move was to thrust something very salient into the wrong context. Dressed as garish figures from history or high culture, they would bizarrely insert themselves into the drab, rainy reality of 1970s England. The Spanish Inquisition bursts into a series of middle-class living rooms. Picasso paints a picture while bicycling down the A29. In an art gallery, the figures in all the paintings walk off their respective canvases to go out on strike. As Michael Palin reminds us in his highly readable diaries, the Britain of Python's era was a grey and dysfunctional place, bedeviled by strikes and power outages. The Pythons worked similar tricks of juxtaposition with words. Their most quotable sentences tend to feature some sudden, jarring contrast between high language and low. It's probably pining for the fjords, says Palin in the parrot sketch, while trying to explain the Norwegian blues' painfully apparent rigor mortis. Like Cardinal Jimenez leaping into somebody's living room, the exotic word gatecrashes the unsuspecting sentence. He's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy, says Brian's mother in Life of Brian. The Pythons kept dragging exalted themes into a context of English ordinariness, thereby revealing the absurdity of both. 
Only those who are capable of silliness, wrote Christopher Isherwood, can be called truly intelligent. Michael Palin quotes this maxim in his diaries with approval. The Python silliness was extreme all right, but it was balanced by their wit and their education. They did physical gags that could amuse a pre-verbal child, but they also employed language so vivid that intellectuals quote it as if it were poetry. When Christopher Hitchens spoke at the Sydney Opera House a couple of years before his death, the audience demanded an encore. Hitchens obliged by reciting the whole of Python's drunken philosopher's song from memory. John Stuart Mill of his own free will on half a pint of shandy was particularly ill. Plato, they say, could stick it away half a crate of whiskey every day, and so on. The Pythons knew their stuff, and when they didn't, they read up on it. Researching the Middle Ages while writing the Holy Grail, they discovered that taunting the enemy was a common tactic in medieval sieges, and so apparently was catapulting dead animals. Thus, the completed film features Cleese's imperishable turn as the French taunter, whose strange shouts of abuse from the battlements, your mother was a hamster and your father smelled of elderberries, are followed by the flinging of the dead cow. During the Python era, writers like Woody Allen were doing similar comedy in America, popular slapstick stuff that unselfconsciously combed history and high culture for inspiration. What a falling off there's been since then. Most of today's popular comedy looks willfully malnourished by comparison. It's poor form these days to know more than your audience. A modern comedian's idea of an obscure reference is to mention Mr. Miyagi or the cantina scene in Star Wars. These references must be okay because every other comedian makes them too. Not even Tina Fey can escape the pop culture echo chamber. Her book Bossy Pants is full of arcane but reassuringly junky cultural references to John from Chips, to the guy from Arliss. But when Faye risks a lone literary illusion, she feels bound to qualify it with a clanging footnote. If you get this reference to David Foster Wallace's 1997 collection of essays, she writes, Consider yourself a member of the cultural elite. Why do you hate your country and flag so much? But the Pythons were luckier than Tina Fey, of course. The air back then wasn't thick with culture war grievance. People were less uptight. They must have been. How else did the Pythons possibly get away with some of the stuff in these scripts? These pages make ample mention of dagos, wops, fairies and ponces. Large-breasted women turn up in low-cut dresses, in order to be lunged at. A townswoman's guild recreates the Battle of Pearl Harbor, having previously staged, quote, an extremely popular reenactment of Nazi war atrocities. Graham Chapman, playing a character who believes himself to be Jewish, puts on an enormous polystyrene nose. Various pythons appear in blackface, and Chapman appears in the character of, quote, a Chinaman. Fortunately, Luke Dempsey, in his capacity as the book's editor, is on hand to chastise the Pythons for these failures to anticipate and heed our current mores. When Chapman's Chinaman starts delivering his lines, Dempsey throws in a helpful footnote. Quote, our modern, even postmodern ears 
might find this stock Chinese accent tough to enjoy, he says. In another sketch, Palin plays an art critic who strangles his wife. Again, this is too much for Dempsey, who feels bound to observe that, quote, this casual violent misogyny strikes the modern viewer as horribly crass. Well, it's good to know that our editor disapproves of spousal homicide. In troubling to let us know that he does, Dempsey risks coming across as humorless, but these days even an annotator of Monty Python would sooner seem humorless than culturally insensitive. At times, Dempsey sounds like a Victorian editor of Shakespeare, scolding the bard for making Hamlet say bawdy Elizabethan things. Dempsey takes it for granted that our values are infinitely more enlightened than the Pythons' values were. He seems confident that we've all come a long way since then. But really, how far have we come? If we now feel the need to put footnotes in Monty Python books to make it clear that we all frown on men who strangle their wives, have we really become so scared of one another? No doubt we are more enlightened than the Pythons were in some ways, but we've lost something too, a general laid-backness and goodwill. It's hard to re-watch Python's old shows now without feeling a nostalgic pang for a time when the world had a far better sense of humour. Those guys didn't need to insert disclaimers to indicate that they were when they pretended to strangle women, only joking. They trusted their audience to see that. Yes, they were looser with their language than we are, but they were loose with it in the same innocent 1970s way that they were loose about everything. Their unfettered hair, their indiscriminate ridicule, their pale, unbuffed bodies which they exhibited for the camera at the smallest opportunity. Yes, they freely used words like poof, but also one member of the team, Graham Chapman, was openly gay. Neither of these things seemed to strike their public as a very big deal. It's a pity that the word irreverent has lost its weight, so that it's now come to seem a mere synonym for cheeky. The Pythons were irreverent in the deepest sense. They had automatic respect for nothing. In their view, everything was fit matter for comedy. Religion, national differences, cannibalism, Hitler, torture, death, crucifixion. They created a parallel world in which nothing was serious. They were like boys. They not only weren't afraid, they didn't know they should be afraid. Today's comedians can't go back to that prelapsarian world. They can query or violate our current taboos, but they can't unknow them. There's been plenty of excellent comedy since Python, but most of it has been the comedy of social anxiety. Comedy that walks the tightrope between what we can and cannot say. The writers of Seinfeld, the smartest TV show of the post-Python era, were keenly aware of the taboos they flirted with, and they knew that propitiations had to be made. When Elaine dated a man whose ethnicity was ambiguous, she didn't know whether he was black or white, she found the question so ticklish that she sought the advice of George. Should we be talking about this, George asked. I really don't think we're supposed to be talking about this. The Pythons felt no such social dread. They talked about whatever they wanted to talk about. There were, of course, certain words they couldn't use while doing so. 
By today's standards, some of the verbal restrictions placed on the flying circus shows seem laughably draconian. All but the mildest of four-letter words were prohibited. The BBC wouldn't let them say masturbation. When America's ABC network ran a Python clip show in 1975, it bleeped out the phrase naughty bits. But beyond these constraints on verbal smart, the Monty Python team was miraculously free to inflict deeper offence. The Undertaker sketch, which aired as the closing number of the Flying Circus's second season, still ranks as one of the most outrageous pieces of comedy ever conceived. If John Cleese had left the show after the second season instead of the third, as he once threatened to do, The Undertaker sketch might have been the last sketch the original troupe ever performed. It would have been a fittingly weird swan song. To watch the sketch for the first time is a strange and slightly shameful experience. The laughter is ripped from somewhere deep inside you, entirely against your will. The sketch is set in a mortuary. Behind the desk stands an elaborately dressed undertaker, played by Chapman. Cleese enters as a solemn young man whose mother has just died. Chapman, in a depraved Cockney accent, embarks on a graphic description of the various services offered by his firm. If we bury her, he says, she gets eaten up by lots of weevils and nasty maggots, which, as I said before, is a bit of a shock if she's not quite dead. Cleese's character looks appalled, but he has no right to be because it turns out that he's brought his mother's corpse along with him in a burlap sack. Chapman peers inside it, and then he proposes that they eat the body. Cleese admits to feeling a bit peckish, but wonders whether eating his dead mother is really a good idea. And then Chapman says, Look, I'll tell you what, we'll eat her, and if you feel a bit guilty about it afterwards, we can dig a grave and you can throw up in it. Monty Python tended to steer clear of punchlines, but that was one for the ages. The BBC didn't like The Undertaker sketch, but it let Python go ahead with it, on the condition that the studio audience could be seen and heard registering its disapproval. There were boos from the crowd as the sketch got nastier. When Chapman delivered that magnificently rancid punchline, the audience stood up and invaded the set. This was an unusually thoughtful way of censoring the sketch without censoring it. Cleese and Chapman had mounted a deliberate assault on a universal taboo. It was therefore appropriate that the audience members were seen looking offended. If they hadn't been offended, there would have been something wrong with them. But a lot of them were laughing too, which seemed to offer proof that being offended isn't the end of the world and might even be a healthy thing. When the Pythons switched from TV to the movies, they became relatively free to use profane language, if they wanted to. But they rarely did. They remained more interested in the subversive possibilities of the profane thought. In Life of Brian, there's a scene in which Brian, played by Chapman, annoys a Judean revolutionary, played by Cleese. In the original cut of the film, Cleese's character had indicated his displeasure by yelling, You cunt. In the final cut, the line was redubbed and it became, You clots. Python didn't make this change to appease a censor. They did it for artistic reasons. 
The profanity was cheaply startling, and it might have obscured the deeper shocks that the film wanted to inflict. Marlon Brando is said to have cited a similar principle when during the shooting of Last Tango in Paris, he refused to be filmed naked. I don't want the audience looking at my dick instead of my face, he told Bertolucci. The Life of Brian stands as Python's masterpiece because of the assurance with which it juggles the silly, the smart, and the sacred. To set a comedy during the time of Christ was a daring venture, even in 1979. Today, such a project would surely flame out on the launch pad. Not that the Pythons set out to mock Jesus, who makes only two fleeting appearances in the film. Instead, they created Brian, whose life has certain parallels to Christ's, but who is emphatically not the saviour. The film was nevertheless deemed blasphemous, mainly by people who hadn't seen it. Those of us who have seen it know that the film has a respect for nuance that its detractors tend to lack. It's almost impossible to believe that Brian is more than 40 years old. It feels ageless and eternally pertinent. The closing scene remains one of the most sublime moments in film comedy. It shocks you by being funny and deeply moving at the same time. Brian hangs on his cross, bearded, shirtless, loinclothed, forsaken. The iconography is daringly authentic, and Chapman's face carries a genuinely affecting look of despair. For the Pythons, the degree of comic difficulty became rather high here. How were they going to talk their way out of this one? In the end, they didn't. They sang their way out instead. Always Look on the Bright Side of Life, composed by Idol, rose to the occasion irresistibly. When the corpses on the ground start tapping their toes to the tune, you can't blame them. The song is phenomenally catchy. But just as you start to feel that the movie has shifted away from seriousness, it dawns on you that what the Pythons are really singing about up there is you. You and the fact that you're going to die too. Always look on the bright side of death just before you draw your terminal breath. This is bold comedy. It gets right down into the roots of what we venerate and fear. When comedy like this works, the payoff is huge. You feel raised up. You feel you're a member of an intelligent species. During the closing ceremony of the 2012 London Olympics, Idol turned up to sing the song live, flanked by a contingent of exhibitionist nuns wearing Union Jack underpants. It was a fitting and gutsy move to throw a touch of python into a ceremony designed to showcase Britain's contributions to world culture. Along with its language, England's sense of humour is its finest export, and python is English humour's apotheosis. Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. True, but it's hard to feel that way while watching Python. The troupe behaved as if nothing was sacred and everything was ridiculous. It's a deeply subversive attitude and also a deeply liberating one.